Good morning, Mary Frances Monroe with the Institute of International Finance. It's Friday, October 18th, and we are at the annual meeting of the IIF. And I have the pleasure of speaking with Tom Wilson, Chief Risk Officer of Allianz and the Chairman of our Insurance Regulatory Committee. So we are having a meeting of the Insurance Regulatory Committee later today, and I want to ask you, Tom, what do you see as the key priorities for the IRC in the coming year? Mary Frances, uh, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation to to be here and to speak today. The IRC, I think, has got a a few challenges in front of us, uh, short-term challenges, which are very specifically related to regulation, which is in some sense being formulated and being, being structured today. And looking a little bit further out, a couple of key areas on the regulatory front that may emerge over the next couple of years. Clearly, on the short-term priorities, the capital standard for the International Association of Insurance Supervisors and the holistic uh, framework, are, these are very key areas where the IRC needs to continue to focus. Looking forward, however, I think there are a couple of areas that are emerging that where the IRC, with a regulatory focus, can really add a lot of value to the debate. Thank you, Tom. How do you think the IRC should balance these these competing interests? There are some on the IRC who are very concerned about what I like to call the legacy issues, the capital standard and the holistic framework. And there are others who would like to see us move away, as the IAIS has done, and pivot to these new and emerging risks. How do you think we should balance the competing interests? I think our priorities will naturally be balanced by the relative state of maturity or lack of maturity of the different initiatives. On the ICS, following November and assuming that everything goes as planned with regards to the November definitions, I think there'll be a natural point to take a hiatus to reflect upon this during the monitoring period and to slow down in some sense until we see some of the ongoing results and then re-engage perhaps in a year or two to see how, based on the evolution and actual experience, how that matures. On the other hand, with that time, I think the IRC can switch to the other sectors or the other issues that I had mentioned, including the, uh, the regulation of the emerging insure tech uh, sector, the use of big data analytics, as well as cyber uh, and cyber insurance. These are the areas where I think we can naturally rotate our emphasis for a while, into some of the emerging issues as we enter into the monitoring period. Thanks, Tom. As you mentioned, uh, we are expecting some further developments from the IAIS with respect to the insurance capital standard and the holistic framework next month in Abu Dhabi. What are your expectations for the meeting in Abu Dhabi? My, My hope is no surprises. And my expectations are no surprises. I think we're at a point in terms of industry and uh, regulatory engagement where I hope that we're in a process of uh, uh, nailing something down such that we can enter into the monitoring period, recognizing that this is ICS 2.0 and not 3.0. And I think that my hope would be no surprises at this point in time. My hope as well. And then in terms of the move to some of the new and emerging risks, and I would say both risks and opportunities, you're the CRO of a leading global insurance group. And I just would like to explore some of the issues that most concern you or most occupy your attention of late. Yeah, I, it would be remiss of me not to, to mention low interest rates. I think we've had a very interesting summer 
In Europe, we had the uh, the swap curve being negative all the way out to year 20. Globally, we've got between 20 and 30% of fixed income bonds issued globally offering negative yields. While rates have come back a little bit, they're still at a low level. Now, in the past, this was uh, in some sense isolated to Asia and Europe. Now, increasingly, I think even in the United States, we're seeing the impact of uh, low rates. Obviously, this raises a couple of different issues. It raises issues with regards to business systems, for example, in margin-based businesses, but also in retirement savings that offer guarantees. Uh, what are the appropriate products? What are the appropriate uh, business models for carrying this forward? It also raises some shorter-term issues, and those shorter-term issues are to what extent are asset markets currently buoyed by the low-rate environment, uh, and how fragile uh, or how fragile are those asset valuations right now? In in Europe, I'd like to think of um, uh, the, the perfect storm or the the trifecta as being rates, equity markets, and credit spreads. And while rates are at an all-time low, we have yet to see the implications or a commensurate or a, uh, a combined shock in terms of equity markets down and credit spreads uh, blowing out. If that trifecta was to occur, that would be very interesting in terms of short-term solvency management and economic management. Longer term, though, lower interest rates, I think, uh, are raising the question about the viability uh, and the structure of various business models. Thanks, Tom. Those themes were certainly part of the discussion at the CAME meeting this morning. And I know that the asset management side of the house is very important to Allianz as well as the insurance. One of the new work streams that we will be discussing at the IRC this afternoon relates to the disaggregation of the insurance business model and the growth of InsurTech. I'd just like to explore your observations about the growth of InsurTech and some of the positive and negative impacts of InsurTech. Yeah, I think uh, InsurTech is a phrase with potentially multiple different definitions. I think if we start from a, a definition where InsurTech is the leveraging of digital or technological advances and IT-related advances to support the insurance business system, that's one aspect. And very clearly, InsurTech then is quite useful. And in fact, most insurance companies, most incumbents are actually pursuing InsurTech agendas uh, with some fervor, whether it's in terms of offering 24-7 customer accessibility, in terms of research online, purchase offline, combined multi-channel strategy. So on the distribution end, as well as in terms of customer lifetime value management, whether it be in terms of improving underwriting processes by leveraging big data in terms of better segmentation, better pricing, uh, and product innovation. So for example, offering usage-based insurance products, whether for driving, for health, et cetera. Or in administration, in terms of straight-through processing, in terms of uh, uh, leveraging better efficiencies to not only cut costs, but also to improve the customer experience along the entire change. And finally, in claims, whether it be in terms of uh, uh, filing claims, optical character recognition, or AI used to interpret photographs of uh, car damage, for example, fraud detection, et cetera. There's a lot of different points where technology is currently being considered and actively leveraged along the insurance value chain across the entire chain, but that's probably not where we're going. I think the insure tech in general as a disruptive exercise or as a disruptive phrasing, not in terms of supporting incumbents' existing business model. I think that's really the direction of the question that you were asking. Well, yes, I think we're looking at both the positive and the negatives. How significant do you think the disruption will be for the insurance business? 
I think the disruption in terms of the insurance business depends on a couple of different things. Let me put forth a couple of observations and then try to knit it together to a coherent story. First, insurance historically has been sold rather than bought, or at least that's been the perception. Second is the economics of insurance, not retirement and savings, rather a property and casualty. The economics of insurance for us at 27 cents of every euro is spent on acquisition and expenses. So our expense ratio in PNC is 27, of which 21 is acquisition. About six or seven is uh, administration, and then claims represent 63, 64 cents, and the remainder is profit, about six to seven cents of every euro. If you look at that chain and you consider where are the likely areas where if you had to target insurance companies for disruption, where along that value chain would you try to target, right? Very clearly at 21 cents of acquisition expenses in our example, that is a reasonably rich potential profit pool, if you will, with up until now without a lot of regulatory oversight. In other words, it's not a prudential issue. It's not a prudential balance sheet issue. We can get to that later because I think there does need to be regulatory reform, especially with regards to customer interfacing. Uh, but that's a, clearly an area that where insure techs will likely to be targeted uh, to the extent to which they can tap into a very large profit pool or expense pool without regulatory uh, overlay. On the underwriting side, in terms of underwriting decisions and balance sheet, insure tech is may or may not choose to, to create or make rather than buy a product. And that will be dependent upon the regulatory burden. That will be dependent upon how complex it is to set up the organization. Then administration, uh, you we're already seeing the rise of third-party administrators that can gain greater scale in terms of managing and administering products. But we're also seeing on the claim servicing side, we're seeing services being offered in terms of uh, uh, aggregation, in terms of providing greater information, greater links to, for example, healthcare providers or, or garages or repair shops, et cetera. So each element of our value chain can, in principle, be attacked by InsureTech to the extent to which they can offer lower cost, better access, and a better customer experience. Those will be ultimately the, the conditions which would drive the success of InsureTech. Now, on the customer side or uh, being bought rather than sold, I think uh, if tapping into the 21 cents, that will be determined by how likely is insurance and insurance products to be bought as opposed to sold. It will be a lot easier to disrupt our value chain to the extent to which standardized products can be interpreted by financially illiterate individuals or supported by AI to make individuals literate. If they become bought, then you're more likely to see penetration and or disruption on the front end of that value chain. Thank you. And before we leave this topic, you talked about regulatory reform and the need for regulatory reform. I'd like to explore that a little bit more with you. <laughs> you know, there are a couple of old paradigms. Insurance is sold rather than bought. That's an old paradigm that has the possibility to be overturned through technological advancement and a more mature and more literate customer base. The other is that insurance manages or controls the, the sales that the insurance company sells. In the brave new world of potentially disrupted or insure tech, it is not clear whether that paradigm will continue. So for example, an insurance company in the past may have had agents and those agents were completely controlled. The scripts that the agents read, the type of documentation that the agents provided, compensation of the agents, the relative mix between compensation, loss ratios, et cetera, they're all pretty much within the insurance company's domain to manage appropriately. 
In the brave new world, if we, for example, consider the, the 21 cents or distributing through ecosystems or through uh, other providers, it's not clear that the insurance company, that paradigm that the insurance company manages uh, from soup to nuts, from uh, customer acquisition all the way to claim settlement, but the insurance company can still be deemed to manage that. Now, this has major consequences because the ecosystems, whether it be a comparison site, whether it be a marketplace such as an Amazon or something else, these ecosystems, they are trying to capture as much of the consumer and producer surplus as they can, right? And they are able to offer quite a, a bit of volume, but naturally in their pursuit of capturing as much of the consumer and producer surplus, they're going to be very much focused on the commissions, on cost of distribution. In addition, they may optimize their procedures in terms of nudging customers to various solutions, depending on their interests as opposed to the customer interests. And it's very difficult or it may be more difficult for an insurance company to manage the relationship with a provider that offers a billion, two billion worth of premium versus an agency, right? Where we do control the script, we do control the commissions, we do control it's sold. It's a fundamentally different world. Now, the reason why I raise this is because a lot of the insurance regulatory discussion on big data, on insure tech, it starts from the old paradigm. Uh, there's an example of an IIS paper on big data. It's a fantastic paper, but one of the most telling things is uh, right up front, they say where data is processed and held by intermediaries uh, or generated by intermediaries, the issues identified in this paper will also be applicable as and when appropriate. In these circumstances, references to insurer in the paper would include insurance intermediaries. So they're lumping them back. They're not distinguishing the fact that InsureTech has the possibility to completely uproot and turn on its head the paradigm that the insurance company manages every point, including all aspects of distribution, whether it be nudging or whether it be advising, whether it be the commission levels, et cetera. And I think this is the big failure if you will, in terms of the insure tech regulatory dialogue today. The game has changed uh, or the game has the potential to change to the extent to which the insurance company or the traditional regulated insurance company is no longer the primary manager of the distribution, the documentation, the way customers are advised and or nudged, etc. Right. Well, that certainly calls for more dialogue with IAIS because I think it became uh, clear in the process of reviewing the most recent issues paper, draft issues paper on the use of big data analytics by insurance, that there may be some gaps in the understanding of the supervisors as to how much change is underway in the insurance business and some of the implications for that change. So I think that that's an area in the coming year where we could engage in some constructive conversation. Let me give you an example. Right now, the the industry in the IAIS is pretty much focused from, a, let's start from the regulated sandbox, if you will, and then we'll, we'll see how to, within our current frameworks, how we adapt them, right? The fact of the matter is that no matter what type of controls you put in terms of the, the data that an insurance company uses, what type of controls you put upon the interpretability of black box underwriting algorithms, no matter what kind of controls you put, uh, if you go to a, a, an, a use or an end product or an end result-based regulatory framework, which looks at whether or not de facto 
customers are perceived to be discriminated against, et cetera, you're going to run a problem because the insurance company is not the only player in this chain anymore, right? So the fact that an ecosystem can gently nudge customers to capture more of the consumer and producer surplus into solutions, this fact and the fact that the ecosystem can use data that may be may be highly correlated with, for example, gender, uh, race, religion, etc., in an in an environment which is very intransparent, and in an approach which is very intransparent under black box underwriting, not even underwriting, just how do you get the appropriate value proposition to customers? The end result, even if the insurance underwriting, even if you got a well controlled underwriting process with regards to what data can you use, uh, how do you interpret the results, and can you interpret the results, even if that little block is done. If you look at the end result, you still may, according to financial conduct regulation, you may still come up with results which don't meet emerging societal norms with regards to the results. So I think the IAAS or regulators need to look it's not just you know what starting from the regulated dinosaur, which is the traditional insurance underwriting model. I think the, the IAS needs to broaden its scope and say if the end product is what we want, is the results that we want, what other players are in here and how do they interact and what are their motivations in terms of capturing a lot of the consumer and producer surplus. In a nutshell, I think the regulatory environment, regulators, especially on the conduct side, need to open up their lens. And instead of focusing narrowly on the insurance group, which they have well under control, Mm -hmm. they need to broaden it and to understand in this brave new world, the other players and the incentives of those other players and how those incentives lead them to actions which may or may not influence the very narrow scope, which is insurance. Absolutely. And they also need to coordinate with the authorities responsible for data privacy and data protection in order to understand some of the dynamics around the use of data and, as you mentioned, the ethical use of data, which is very, very critical. Let's shift for a second to another emerging topic that has been the subject of a recent IIF paper, and we also understand that it is the topic of a new working group at the IAIS and that is dealing with cyber risk. And we're not talking about cyber resilience here. We're actually talking about the underwriting of cyber risk. I wanted to get your thoughts on on this uh, area as a new topic for IRC attention and also more generally as a topic of importance for the industry going forward. Mary Frances, I think it's a a critical topic, um, both from an industry perspective as well as from a regulatory perspective, because I do believe that there are regulatory issues that can be productively addressed to support a broader and more vibrant market. From an industry perspective, very clearly against the potential for declining uh, premium or declining business in other sectors due to a variety of different uh, megatrends, the share economy, for example, et cetera. Cyber is a potential, offers a potential uh, as we fundamentally shift from owned property to services and intellectual property, very clearly cyber insurance can be a great growth area. And my company, as well as other companies, are very active in helping to develop that particular market. The issues that we face are a couple, and the issues are, in some sense, areas where regulators should also be thinking. Um, One has to do with the the old question between silent cyber or non-affirmative, how much cyber risk is embedded in, for example, our traditional property covers today, which may not be specifically uh, mentioned and or excluded. 
versus affirmative. I think in general, the industry is making strides on an individual company by company basis as appropriate for a competitive industry in terms of refining the terms and conditions of various contracts. Uh, what I'm seeing is that different com country companies are coming up with very different terms and conditions to move from uh, a silent cyber or non-affirmative to affirmative. I think in general, it behooves everyone to move to affirmative, to very clearly identify and be able to manage the potential accumulation exposures from cyber. So I think the individual actors are, are behaving very rationally and very appropriately. I think for an industry-wide, uh, the collective actions are in the right direction. The question that I would have is, can regulators help support convergence in terms of terms and conditions? Because to the extent to which contract wordings uh, in some contracts offer exclusions and some don't, we're in a, a transitional period, right? From marine hull or uh, aviation hull, it's been around for, for decades, right? So the, the industry has converged already. We are pre-convergence. And so one question would be, uh, can regulators support or can a broader industry body without uh, raising the specter of collusion or something else, can, can they help support a more rapid convergence in terms of uh, uh, the, the identification or rather the definition of affirmative versus non-affirmative? That's a, a clear area where I think support and or industry-wide thought needs to be brought to bear. Now, eventually, I know we're going to get there as an industry, uh, just like in marine hull or aviation hull. Eventually, we're going to get there, but can we make it a, a little bit faster? The other aspect, though, is the aspect of accumulation. I'm the chief risk officer of Allianz, and quite frankly, I am somewhat concerned by accumulation scenarios. And the accumulation scenarios are not property-driven. Peak accumulation scenarios are actually driven by antagonistic actors who may, in a concerted effort, impact large segments of the real economy, whether it be North Korea, China, Russia, etc. And these types of accumulated scenarios can't be ruled out, as far as I can tell. We've run scenarios of uh, uh, trade wars morphing into cyber wars, morphing into limited land wars. And these are scenarios that we think about. And ultimately, this type of peak exposure uh, or this scenario is going to limit capacity, right? I mean, it, it, it will. So to the extent to which regulators can think through or help the industry to think through, uh, these exposures will exist. The next question is how in terms of conditions, and I don't think it's an underwriting issue. I think it, these exposures, these accumulations will always exist. This is an underwriting. This is just a natural consequence. Uh, how can we potentially remove the potential for accumulations against a, I'll use the phrase cyber terrorist, uh, how can we remove those potential accumulation limits for insurers such that we can provide a base level that covers the day-to-day -day risks that insurance is capable of managing and supporting industry? That's an area that I think could use some thought uh, very productively. Do you see a role for the public sector getting more involved directly in the provision of cyber cover? I don't know. There are various solutions in terms of peak exposures, right? So one solution is like TRIPRA for terrorist cover. 
uh, and or public provision. You can picture national support uh, functions in terms of natural catastrophes to pick up uninsured. So there's there's public provision. There is also, for example, the definition of what constitutes a terrorist event against which insurance uh, companies' coverage may not be applicable. Whether it's governmental provision of some type, whether it is trying to narrow down the scope for the insurance balance sheet so that we can cover those risks which are are meaningful to be covered in an insurance context as opposed to very, very extreme peak exposures driven by something that is not a natural phenomenon. Um, I don't know where the solution is, uh, but I do think that ultimately, unless we come to a solution, the capacity to the market will be limited. It's as simple as that. Thank you, Tom. One last area I want to talk about is an issue that comes up mainly in the banking context, but I'd like to explore it in the insurance context as well, and that is the issue of regulatory and market fragmentation. Are you concerned about fragmentation in the insurance industry? Can you uh, define the phrase for me? Well, the issue of regulatory fragmentation would come up in the context of different regulations, different standards, different rules being applied by different national or regional supervisors that might make it difficult to conduct a global insurance business. I think we are. uh, The insurance industry is ostensibly starting at a a different goalpost than the banking industry. Uh, Insurance industry has not had Basel II, Basel III, Basel 3.5, Basel whatever. Uh, We have not had coordinated global supervision on a prudential basis. Uh, We're we're moving towards something, what that is with the IAS uh, Comframe, uh, international capital standards. I don't know. We're still in the process of getting there. And as a consequence, uh, most primary insurers are subject to the ultimate level of fragmentation, right? So primary insurance is regulated on local, is written on local legal entities. Local legal entities have local gap. They have local uh, regulatory requirements. They have local, uh, they have international financial reporting standards, and then they may have something like a solvency too on top of that. So uh, I am quite used to regulatory fragmentation. This is something that we have been living with for most of my adult life, and I don't anticipate, while I anticipate that we may be moving towards uh, greater convergence at some point in time, we have to be careful with what we wish for, <laughs> is is the outcome actually going to be better than what we have today in terms of running a business? Uh, that's clearly one of the debates that's happening in the IRC, uh, whether or not uh, the, the the globalization of uh, regulatory oversight is actually a good thing or not, depending on your starting point. Um, but it is something that we are we are working with today, so it's a it's a natural fact. I think in terms in terms of it, it's actually Paradoxically, if you assume that local regulation will continue to exist, then uh, global regulation such as Solvency II, which is put on top, has consequences to the extent to which it's a tighter, uh, more constraining framework than the local, right? And if that is the case, then various businesses may not look as good under a Solvency II lens. In our example, and I think in the European, I, I can only speak for solvency too. Very clearly, most European companies that had significant life businesses in the U.S. chose third country equivalents. Right? I can't name a a very significant uh, European player, a very significant owner of a a significant U.S. life business that chose to go under solvency too. 
right? It just doesn't exist. So clearly, and this is not pejorative to the local RBC, uh, the NAIC RBC, it's just a statement of fact that solvency two is would be a much more binding constraint uh, relative to uh, the local. And the same is true in Asia, for example. Now, this has logical consequences in terms of who is the appropriate owner of various portfolios, depending on it. And we've seen some actions by European players in the United States to divest of various activities, uh, whether that was driven by a fundamental business economics, whether that was driven by uh, a, a regulatory decision in terms of our decision to optimize regulatory capital. Who, who can say? I'm not on those. Uh, I'm not sitting in the, in the board of those, those companies. But I would suggest that any regulatory overlay or any consistent system to the extent to which local regulatory uh, requirements, prudential requirements still exist, it makes it more complicated, number one. But number two, it also has the potential to uh, for the, the need for companies to reevaluate their corporate portfolios. And whether that is a desirable result or whether that is a, an unintended consequence or has unintended consequences, we'll see. Right. Well, thank you very much, Tom. I just want to give you the opportunity if there are any other points that you would like to make on this podcast before we conclude. Just a, uh, a very positive note in terms of the work that's being done by the IIF and particularly the Insurance Regulatory Commission and all of your support. I think we are addressing the proper issues. And I think we're addressing them in very thoughtful ways that, that have the potential to really move the regulatory environment and the industry forward. Uh, so a, a note of thanks for everybody that is uh, working on the ground. A note of thanks to the IIF and to yourself for actually supporting this. I think it's a, a great effort and it's yielding benefits. It's, it's a tough, I can imagine, right? And it is, it is tough, but it is a very much appreciated. Well, thank you. We very much appreciate that. And thank you, Tom Wilson, for your time today. And we'll conclude our podcast. Thank you.